And I want you to focus your minds for a few moments on that part of Acts 19 where we are reading about a riot that took place at Ephesus. To begin with, I'd like for you to imagine, can you think that the church at Ephesus of getting some sort of community award? I can't. I can't visualize in my mind a congregation that is running counterculture, a congregation that is trying to save people's souls to make everybody feel so good that they're going to win some kind of community award and says, look, these people here, they're just so loving, they're just so sweet, they never say anything that upsets anyone. Because if you'll remember in Luke's chapter 6 and verse 26, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. You know, if the preacher never says anything that steps on your toes, and if there's nothing that is ever preached that makes you feel uncomfortable, the preacher is not doing his job. And if Paul and the Christians who are a part of the church at Ephesus was making everybody happy, then you've got to beware because that's what the false prophets did. They preached, they taught everything that anybody wanted to hear. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 asked the question, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I wouldn't be doing the job that I'm doing if I'm only concerned about making this community happy. Now folks, here's the the reality. When the church was the church, when the church preached a message that was true and right and God-pleasing, it made the community uncomfortable, but it made the church grow. In this context, in Acts 19 and verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The church was actually making an impact and people understood that these people were speaking from God. And the truth is, we are not called to be the comforters of the community. We're called to be a spiritual conscience. We're to say this is what God says on any topic, whether it is moral or family related or religiously, this is what God says and this is the way that God wants us to live. Now with that in mind, let's go to Acts chapter 19. Verses 23 through verse 41 records this event and it may appear that this is just a a narrative of what happened by Luke. There's some great lessons in it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the characters that were involved. Uh, We're going to look at the various men like Demetrius. We're going to look at uh, Aristarchus and Gaius. And we're going to look at Paul. And we're going to try to understand how these personalities came into play. Number two, we're going to look at the causes of this riot. What was it actually that brought this about? Number three, some conclusions plural, that we can draw from it. Let's begin with Demetrius. If you'll open your Bibles, let's look at now verses 24 through verse 28. And Luke records, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith 
who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they're not gods made with hands so that not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed whom all the Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Luke tells us he was a silversmith. The smiths depended upon which ones were working with what type of metal. You may have a goldsmith, a silversmith, a coppersmith, an ironsmith. And when you think about silver, there are those working with precious metal. You might think that all he's doing is, is somehow taking silver, but really it's overlaid. If you go to the book of Judges, in chapter 17 and verse 4, we read, Then he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. You have something that's carved, and then you overlay it with silver. That's what they would do. He made silver shrines of Diana. You see, these are like souvenirs. Several years ago when I went to Ephesus the first time, I went to the little souvenir shop and I bought a model of Diana made out of some sort of plastic or something. The archaeologists have found a number of those in the grounds as they have dug around the city of Ephesus. But we learned that he was also a man of influence among the trade guild. The trade guilds of silversmiths or goldsmiths was much like, for instance, we have unions today of the sheet metal workers or some other area. But now I want to focus on Paul for just a minute. He was on his third missionary journey. The first one he had taken with Barnabas. The second one with Silas. And now he's on his third missionary journey. And he has come to the city of Ephesus. When he arrived a few weeks ago, we studied about the men, the 12 men who had once been baptized and now were rebaptized. He taught them correctly. He spent about two and a half years there and he was preaching and teaching so that all Asia heard the word of the Lord. But I want you to notice about something about Paul. He was not a man who had taken the course on how to win friends and influence people. Here's a man whose goal was to try to speak God's message regardless of whose presence he was in. When you go to the book of Galatians chapter 2, he talks about, and because of time I'm not going to read all of this, but he went up to Jerusalem, he went with Barnabas, he took Titus with him. You read about those people that he met and then he describes to them and he said in verse 6, but from those who seem to be something... Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism. And he says, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Whenever Paul went in, if it was 
a man who was the king, who was a man who was a Roman governor, whether it was the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John, it didn't make any difference. Whatever God had given him by revelation, that's what he was going to preach and he was going to teach. The third character is that of Diana. Sometimes you'll see it as Artemis. Artemis is the Greek term for Diana. And it was a well-known deity, and Ephesus was the city that was known for this idol. It was believed that this was a meteorite that fell down from the gods, and we'll see that in the text. Notice with me verse 35 of this text. And when the city clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? You see, most likely here's a meteorite that comes down and everybody sees it, it lands in a field. Maybe it looks like something. I don't know what it would have looked like. But here's what happens. The people say, the gods sent this down to us. And what took place was this statue that they developed looked like a woman. Here's a picture of the one that's from the city of Rome. It's exactly like the one that I've got in my office. But the temple that housed this stone was enormous. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide. We're talking about a football field and a half in length and a foot, half the width of a football or a football field width and a half. This is a huge building, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so because of that, everybody knew about this great building. Now let's talk about some other guys, Gaius and Aristarchus. Look at verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord and having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Now Luke tells us they were Macedonians and if you're keeping up with the geography of the area, Ephesus is in Asia. And uh, Derby and Thessalonica, where they were from, was in the area of Greece. Uh, now it's known as Macedonia. And they're from a different area, have a different personality. But the key fact is they're Paul's traveling companions. In Acts 20, verse 4, Luke tells us that uh, Aris and Starchus and Secundus were of the Thessalonians, and Gaius was from Derby. Paul's traveling companions. They've been taken into the theater. Now I want you to imagine there are about 25,000 people looking you in the face, screaming out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're angry. They're a mob. It's a riot. Gaius and Aristarchus have been taken in. Do you suppose that these men may have wondered if they were at the wrong place at the wrong time? But God took care of them. God took care of them. The next of the characters is the city clerk. 
We see in verses 35 through 41, and again, I'm not going to spend the time reading all of this. He talks about the fact that uh, these people have gathered together here and don't do anything rashly, the latter part of verse 36. Verse 37, he says, You have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. He goes on to say, if you've got a case, what you have, you have the proconsuls, you have the government officials, you can take these people before them. Your inquiry can be heard before a lawful assembly. Verse 40, he says, we're in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There being no reason for which we can give an account for this disorderly gathering. The town clerk is saying, folks, we don't need to be doing this. The word is the same word for a scribe. He was in the Roman government the man who drafted the laws. Not necessarily passed them, that was a, a legislative branch, but he was the man who wrote the laws out. That's called a recorder. He was also in charge of the city's money, and that was a treasurer. I've often thought every time I read through here of Brother John Biddle. Brother John was at one time the city recorder and the city treasurer. That's the kind of man he was. He was the one who would have had to give the official answer to the Roman government for the riot. And he said, we need to stop what we're doing now. And so he would have been a man of not only knowledge, but experience and wisdom. But now I want to focus on another man that it's very easy to read over. And this is Alexander. And if you look at verses 33 and 34, we read... And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand. But he wanted to make a defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now we're told by Luke here that this man is a Jew. But they're putting him forward. Why are they putting him forward? You might think, well, because he's just as opposed to idolatry as Paul would be. The Jews were not supposed to be idolaters. But do you know that Luke refers to this specific Alexander? And he may be the same Alexander that Paul warned Timothy of in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. He said, Antichicus, I have sent to Ephesus, bring the cloak which I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Now think about that for just a minute. Alexander the coppersmith. Verse 15, you must also beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Here's a man evidently who said, you know what? I'm a coppersmith. I can make these idols and I can just say I'll turn the other eye. I'll use my mental reservation. Paul said you've got to be aware of a man like that. What this did, this brought about the causes of this riot. And there were two major causes and leading to another. The first one, the most obvious, is the artisans were fearful for their loss of profit. In their minds, you know, 
if Paul starts teaching they're not gods made with hands, what's going to happen to our trade? Who's going to buy our little souvenirs, silver souvenirs of Diana? Our trade's going to be in disrepute. We're not going to have any money. Look at verse 25. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. That's where we make our money. You want to make people angry? Hit them in the pocketbook. Let me pause and ask you a question. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hold it for just a minute. They knew they were making nothing more than pieces of wood, metal, and stone. These artisans knew that they got their piece of wood from here, they got their piece of stone from here, they got their metal from there, and they were making nothing more than just idols. Now let me ask the question. What would happen if we started teaching the truth so plainly and so clearly that every tavern in McMinnville shut down because there was nobody there to drink the alcohol. How do you think the alcohol industry would respond? What if every one of these convenience stores that sells the lottery tickets, that we taught the truth of God about gambling so much that nobody would buy a lottery ticket? What if every abortion clinic in the state of Tennessee shut down because there was no woman seeking an abortion because she had been taught the importance of the life of that child? You see, the way Paul confronted the sin was to teach the truth, and what that did was that changed people. And you know what would happen in our community if that started happening? I guarantee you the convenience stores, the liquor stores would start attacking us as a people. Demetrius knew that to stir up the people, he had to challenge their loyalty, he had to challenge their religion, and he had to challenge their patriotism. And so notice with me, verses 26 through verse 28, and then verse 34. Moreover, you see in here that not only Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they're not gods which are made with hands. You mean that that little trinket, that, that, oh, it's not a god. Now, if you keep going on, you recognize that we've got a, a message to preach. Just like in Isaiah chapter 44 Verses 9 and 10. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form of God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Why in the world would you create something that you can put in your hand which won't do anything for you? You serve it instead of it serving you. Jeremiah 10, 3 through 5. Jeremiah mocks this. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of workmen with an axe. 
They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do good. I think about people who look at little voodoo dolls and they stick pins and, oh, you're worried about I'm not the least bit worried about that. You know why? Because whoever has that little thing has to tote it around. They're the ones who have to put the pins in it. It doesn't do anything, folks. These people here at Ephesus have been superstitious. See, the truth is Christianity is not a neutral religion. Whenever you and I do what God wants us to do, it will create a commotion. Chapter 19 and verse 23, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Folks, what this is saying is we here at the Lord's Church at Bible Branch must be distinctive. We must preach the truth. We must draw a line of distinction between what God says is right and what God says is wrong and tell the world why. Paul's preaching there had already hurt the magic business. 50,000 pieces of silver for the books they burn on magic. Acts 17 verse 6. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. There's no place for the fellowship with evil. You and I have to recognize it. It's our challenge to be different. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, concerning the things, eating the things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no other God but one. We preach that there is one God and there is one Savior and there is one body, Ephesians 4, verse 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. What am I saying then, that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols anything? Rather, the things which a Gentile sacrificed to demons and not to God, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Folks, it's time for us to quit getting along with sin with evil, with things that God will not permit. And people can be vicious when they think they're with their hearts rather than their heads. People become passionate when their political realms are challenged, when their loyalties are there. And There were some reasonable men at Ephesus. But the masses, the majority, were mindless, they were just marching in step wherever everyone else was going. And God warned in Exodus 23, verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. No, you don't follow evil. Many will put profit before the Lord and before the truth. There's going to be Alexanders. There are going to be people who are going to compromise. But we've got to be like Paul where our preaching sometimes causes a riot. In Matthew 19, verse 22, Jesus did the same thing. After this young man who came to Jesus and he told him, to be perfect, you have to go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. For him, the thing that stood between him and the Lord and doing what was right was his money. That may be us, but we've got to make sure that it's not. Wherever God's word is preached truthfully and faithfully, it will call on men to abandon their sinful ways. You know, we've got to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become so comfortable with this world that we can't call them out. And some will become angry. And when they do, it will make them change. They'll become angry because they'll say, you're wrong. And they'll say, okay, I I want to prove you wrong. I listened to a little bit of a lesson this morning by a man who had decided he wanted to be an atheist. And he had decided he wanted to prove atheism right and Christianity wrong. And what happened was that the more he started trying to prove it wrong, the more he realized it was right. Some people will have the gospel prick their heart. And they'll ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? And so I'm going to ask the question, what does the Word of God say to you? Is it saying, I need to make a change in my life? If it is, maybe you're not a Christian and you say, I've been resisting all along, but I really know the truth. Why not be obedient to the gospel this morning? Why not come and be baptized for the remission of your sins? Are you walking as a person just saying, I don't want to upset anybody, I don't want to upset anything. Let me say, if that's where you are, you're upsetting God. God wants you to be loyal and true and faithful. We're going to sing the song of invitation. There's power in the blood. That's what's going to save you from your sins. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ If you need to respond to his call and his invitation this morning, please come while we stand together and sing.